and welcome to Little Yopod, the all things Yosemite podcast. I'm Laura Jackson, a former interpretive guide who lived and worked in Yosemite since 2004, and I'm here to share features and stories of the Sierra Nevada and Yosemite National Park that I have found compelling for my time spent there. So it looks like I will probably not be returning to Yosemite to work for the rest of this season. Amid all of the uncertainty of the last few months, I had kept up my hopes that things would somehow miraculously work out and I would be back in the field talking about half dome, bears, black oaks, and monarch butterflies, but that just doesn't look like it's in the cards for this year. To say I'm disappointed would be an understatement. But I know I share this sadness with thousands of other people, including some who listen to this podcast, who had to put their Yosemite dreams on hold this year. But I can't say that I'm not in some way also a little bit relieved. Although I loved my job more than any other job I've ever had and probably will ever have again, it could be really stressful. Imagine this, speaking to dozens of people on a subject that only a few weeks before you had no prior experience or knowledge of for at least one and sometimes up to two hours at a time, several times a day, every day. Yeah, it was a little, <laughs> it could be a, it could be a bit uh, daunting, but the work is so good and the people who come out for the programs are generally incredibly gracious and enthusiastic that it made all the fear and stomach aches and extra weight gained from stress eating totally worth it in the long run. I'm so proud of the work I did there and just to have been able to do it in a place as incredible as Yosemite was an honor in itself, even if it was short-lived. When I was hired as an interpretive guide, I was thrust into one of the greatest challenges of my life, educating the public on the nature and history of Yosemite, having no formal training in either field. My major in college was theater, technical theater at that, and that was 16 years ago, and I didn't even get my degree. In the beginning, after I was hired, I was suffering from major imposter syndrome with the content I was being asked to create. Um, it, just in general, but there was no subject that caused me more anxiety and terror than the subject of astronomy. Throughout the year, my department puts on a program called Starry Skies Every Yosemite. Uh, they do this in Yosemite Valley and Glacier Point, which we will not be doing this year because of the COVID pandemic, um, but perhaps in the future. And this program, the Starry Skies program, was one of our most popular programs and pretty much carried the interpretive department financially. Um, it was kind of our, uh, the creme de la creme of the, of the programs that we did there. <clears throat> Starry Skies was oversold every night in the summer, which meant that well over a hundred people, if we were running both programs on the valley and at Glacier Point, we'd have like a hundred up to 150 people that would pay money to actually show up uh, from 9 to 10 p.m. to hear the stories of stars in space. Perhaps because the crowd was so large, this program was one of the most intimidating to host. There are a lot of challenges involved with moving uh, groups of a hundred people from one place to another and then taking tickets and then trying to condense everything in the night sky into an impactful and well-rounded program kind of mushed into a 45 minute window. 
But like I said, people would show up in droves for this program. It was always a huge hit. And I had to wonder, what was it about the Yosemite night sky that had people so fascinated? What was it that would compel so many people to drag themselves out into the cold night to look up at a bunch of tiny sparkling dots? In many ways, the fact that you could even see stars at night was the majority of the appeal itself, due to the work and effort of the Park Service uh, put in to maintain a dark night sky. Yosemite National Park works with the International Dark Sky Association to minimize light pollution as much as possible, giving every visitor to Yosemite the opportunity to see the night sky as it has been seen for thousands of years. Light pollution is caused by the over-illumination of a landscape by artificial lighting, and it disrupts nocturnal habitats and the circadian rhythm of plants and animals. Light pollution also changes the relationship humans have with the night sky. Long before modern civilization, the stars were the forecasters ancient cultures relied on. Stars served as calendars and tools for navigation, and they held cultural significance through storytelling. But as more and more people moved into urban areas, they began to lose that connection. Today, most of the people in the United States cannot see the Milky Way from their backyard. They come to places like Yosemite and other national parks to have that experience. And they come to park educators to help them learn about it. It's a big responsibility because the night sky is so culturally significant and because some of the people who come on our astronomy programs may have never seen the sky so brilliantly represented with thousands of stars and visible planets, and many of them may never see it like that again. I remember the day my manager informed me that she had just scheduled my first astronomy program at Glacier Point for the season. I could feel my palms getting sweaty and my heartbeat started to beat rapidly. To say I knew nothing about astronomy was pretty accurate. I couldn't even point out a single constellation. And to be honest, I had no idea what a star really was. And I was expected to educate a group of 100 people on the science and stories of space. I asked if there was any way I could possibly postpone the program indefinitely because I was just not a space person. She told me that sometimes our greatest weaknesses become our greatest strengths. So I guess I had the answer to that question. I didn't even know where to start. I supposed I should actually go stargazing. So I poured myself a big old cup of wine and went out to the meadow behind my apartment to observe the night sky. And I became totally lost in it. Nothing about it made any sense. And I started to understand why people came to park educators to learn about it. Because I felt like I needed one in that moment as well. But although it was all mysterious to me, it was not entirely unfamiliar. Growing up in the Tehachapi Mountains of California, my mom always kept track of meteor showers and astronomical events. I remember seeing the comet Hale-Bopp when I was a kid through a pair of binoculars, a fuzzy blob in space, not quite what I was expecting. But the meteor showers were consistent sources of entertainment for me and my friends who would come over to lay on the trampoline for a sleep out to watch the streaks of meteors shooting across the sky. Back then, I thought the streaks were dying stars burning away far up in the heavens. But I learned that meteors are not stars. They are bits of debris in space that burn up when they enter Earth's atmosphere. Not quite as exciting as the name shooting star implies. 
But when I say little bits of debris, I mean tiny, like the size of a grain of rice. And yet all the amazing insights and facts of stars and space in the universe never elicit the same excitement expressed with the sighting of a single shooting star. Because people don't come out into the cold Yosemite nights to learn everything about space in an hour. They mostly just want to see a night sky. I forgot how lucky I was to grow up somewhere that I could see the stars any night of the year. What I learned while building my program for Starry Skies Over Yosemite was that like Yosemite, there were no rules for loving the stars. You didn't have to know everything or even anything about them to appreciate them. The stars have been an important part of every civilization before us. Before anything was known about them scientifically, they were known intimately. The stars were familiar, they were reliable, they were part of the culture. There were stories and personalities assigned to the stars and patterns found among them. It's incredible how closely ancient cultures related to the stars considering what we think they didn't know and what we know today. What we know now for certain is perhaps what they knew all along, that we have the stars to thank for our very existence. Before humans, before Earth, before solar systems, before galaxies, and before stars, there was something called the singularity. What scientists talk about when they talk about the Big Bang Theory is the event that took place when approximately 14 billion years ago, a tiny point in space, something smaller than a single atom, suddenly expanded exponentially and has continued expanding ever since. That means that all of the matter that we have identified and classified in the universe, which is a very small fraction of it, originated in that tiny single point. And since matter cannot be created or destroyed, as far as we know, the same matter has been reorganized and recycled infinite times and in infinite ways since the beginning of time and space to today. At the time of the Big Bang, the only elements were hydrogen, helium, and trace amounts of lithium and beryllium. The elements that make up the human body, from carbon to iron, did not exist until they were created in a star through a process of nuclear fusion. I find the fact that everything in the observable universe was all condensed into a tiny point smaller than an atom to be thrilling. It means that we can trace ourselves back to one thing, one event, one big event that connects us to everyone and everything around us. It puts us in the universe in ways I had never imagined. The more I learned about space, the more I realized there were just so many things that had to happen in our favor to put us here in this moment. Billions of years of processes of star birth and death, of swirling clouds of dust and molecules, It amazed me how a supernova, the death of a massive star light years away, could be the catalyst of an unknown number of solar systems, including perhaps our own. It amazed me how our sun consumed over 99% of the matter surrounding it, bearing tiny bits of dust and debris that would coalesce to form eight impressive planets, and how one planet sat just near enough to and far enough away from the sun to create an environment that would one day support life. How another planet unwittingly defended the planet 
in the so-called Goldilocks zone from annihilation by asteroid, but not before a massive space collision would form the Earth's moon, which would pull the ocean tides and evolve oxygen-breathing organisms. We take all of these things for granted, but there are too many things that could have gone wrong and had to go right to put everything and every one of us here in this moment, the present, like a gift to us from the universe. I can't help but to feel so lucky to be a part of it all, to be the result of all those processes consolidated into one single being, and to get to live in a time that I can even begin to understand that, I have found to be a gift as great as the universe itself. We may be the only intelligent life in the universe. There is no evidence other than statistical data that would suggest otherwise, which, if that were true, would make humans the most complex things in the universe. By that assumption, every process and evolution may have culminated in the human race, in you and in me. You cannot deny that as something quite profound. Since I left Yosemite last November, I have only seen the stars a few times, just some of the brightest ones over a city. It's one of the things I miss the most about living there, and one of the things I miss sharing. I miss the excitement expressed when someone sees the enormity of the star-filled sky over Yosemite National Park for the first time. I think many people didn't even believe such a thing was possible. Why do we feel so much when we look into the night sky? Are we holding the collective wonder of billions of people who came before us? Is it because the more we learn, the more we have yet to learn? Perhaps we look to the stars for answers just as much today as we have for thousands of years. One of my favorite features of the night sky is the shape of the asterism, the Big Dipper. The Big Dipper is in the northern sky of the northern hemisphere and is a part of the constellation Ursa Major, the Great Bear. It may be argued that this is one of the most widely recognized and most significant shapes in the night sky. There's nothing particularly striking about it, aside from the naked eye double star feature, Mizar and Alcor. But every culture seems to have a deeply embedded relationship with this shape. Many cultures know it as the ladle. Others know it as the plow. In Vietnam, it is seen as the rudder of a boat. In Indonesia, it is seen as the canoe. The Burmese see it as a crustacean. And in Shinto, the seven stars of the Big Dipper belong to the originating heart of the universe, the thing that existed before anything else. I love the Big Dipper for all of these beautiful interpretations, but also because it is a guidepost for the night sky, like one of those signs you see on a country road pointing in all different directions. The arc of the Dipper's handle takes your eyes to Arcturus, a brilliant orange star in the constellation Bootes. The inside of the ladle drops down to Leo, one of the earliest identified and categorized constellations and a part of the original zodiac. And if you follow a straight line from the stars at the tip of the dipper, they point you to Polaris, the North Star. The North Star has been the guidepost for countless travelers by land and by sea for thousands of years. Sailors look to it to navigate their ships. I used it to find my way home after getting lost in the backcountry and thousands of people followed the beacon in the night to find freedom from slavery. What is it about the night sky that moves us? It's different for everyone. For me, it was the nights spent out in the Tehachapi Mountains with my loved ones. 
It was the first time I saw the Pleiades sparkling and shimmering impossibly perfect over Cloud's Rest, or when I looked to Polaris to find my way home. It is knowing that everything can be traced back to one single moment and that every one of us has the universe inside of us. I hope that if you have a chance to spend a night out with the stars that you take that opportunity, even if it's only for an hour. But don't let it overwhelm you and don't feel like you need to know everything or even anything about it. It's a good time to be still, to accept that moment just as it is, the present, a gift to you from the universe. The stars are a reminder of where we came from. They remind us of how much we have in common. Beyond the invisible constructs of society and culture, beyond the color of our skin, we are in this universe, and the universe is in each of us, a handful of elements created in the belly of a star. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Little Yo Pod. If you liked this episode, please tell a friend and let me know what you think of the podcast. You can email me at littleyopod at gmail.com or you can like the Little Yo Pod Facebook page for updates as well as photos and other resources for Little Yo Pod, Yosemite National Park, and the Sierra Nevada. This week's fun fact is not a fact. It is an announcement. This is the final episode of season one of Little Yo Pod. When I started the podcast back in January, I could not have anticipated all of the major changes that were going to happen this year. And for that reason, I'm going to be revising the content of the podcast and making some changes for the next season. I'm not sure when the podcast will resume yet. It's kind of in the beginning stages of development. So I'm asking for your patience during the process. Uh, for myself, I'm going to take some time away and go traveling. And yes, I am going down to Yosemite. So I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, I'm looking for some new ideas and inspiration while I'm down there as well. I want to thank everyone that has stuck around and supported Little Yopod during the last six months. I truly appreciate all of you. And I'm so grateful for the Little Yopod community. Thank you so, so much. I couldn't have done it without you. And if anyone is going to be in Yosemite uh, or the Sierra Nevada in the month of July, that's also where I'll be. So, you know, hit me up if you want to hang out. Maybe we can go do some stargazing one night. I would love that. All right. That's going to wrap it up for this season of Little Yo Pod. I'm Laura Jackson. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you in Yosemite.